0: Happy Holidays and Happy New Year, everyone. It's a wonderful
1: time of the year. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The news professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. Again, to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up to date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHub.com. So it's been another record breaking week last week. We had the highest number of listeners last week than any other week in TF7 radio history as our listenership continues to rapidly grow. I'm loving it, just keep it coming. I mean, thanks so much for tuning in and and make sure you spread the word to your colleagues who work in the cybersecurity space or your friends who are just interested in what's going on with what has quickly become one of the biggest threats to our national security, and that's our collective cybersecurity. So this is going to be the last original show for 2017. The next two Mondays, Our federal holidays with Christmas and New Year's Day coming up on December 25th and January 1st, so we're going to be off. But we're still going to be on the air. We're going to be playing repeats of our two most popular shows during our live broadcast times on Voice America for the next two weeks. But as you know, all of our previous episodes are available 24-7, 365, anytime, from anywhere in the world. You can listen at your total convenience, And at your listening pleasure at voiceamericabusiness.com. Or you can subscribe to listen to Task Force 7 Radio at any one of a number of websites, including iTunes, for all you iPhone users out there, or Google Play, if you had an Android. That's right. It's available on Google Play now. As well as listennotes.com, tunein.com, player.fm, and stitcher.com. So basically, we're everywhere now. You can't miss us. So you can listen to us on these websites and also check us out on social media. I mean, we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+, Plus at TF7Radio, as well as the website, TaskForce7Radio.com. So we're, we're pretty much taking over the cybersecurity airwaves and just loving every minute of it here. I mean, a lot of people are off over the next two weeks, and they'll be spending a lot of time with family and relaxing and getting some rest. So it's a great time to catch up on all the episodes you missed. So when we go live again on January 8th, you're all caught up and ready to hit the ground running going into the new year. Cock lock and ready to rock, baby. Engines firing on all cylinders. That's the way we have to roll here. So tonight, we're going to have my good friend, George Ovetisov, on the show. So George is the CEO and co-founder of Hyper Corporation. So in his capacity as the CEO of Hyper Corp, George is responsible for the overall strategy, product, sales, company management, and culture of the entire organization, as you can imagine. He's very much a product-focused CEO. He's heavily focused on client and channel partner relationships, media engagements, messaging, and brand identity. So a little bit about George. He's a smart dude. He's the real deal. When he was only 19 years old, he co-founded and established a company called Company.com. So, it was an online jewelry store that he built from, from the ground up. He designed and built the website, defined sales processes, he oversaw manufacturing and vendor relationships, and he scaled logistics and business operations through a period of very rapid growth. Utilizing focused brand optimization and an aggressive white hat SEO strategy, George outranked incumbents such as Macy's and, and Blue Nile on key search terms to achieve a $5 million annual run rate with a team of only nine people. So while operating this business for over five years, George faced a continuous threat of payment fraud, identity theft, and various other fraudulent activities commonly seen in the e-commerce industry. So having seen the impact of cyber fraud on both the consumer and the merchant, in in this case, his own company, George developed a deep-rooted interest in solving the digital identity problem. So he created Hyper, which has been another very successful venture for him and this time in the cybersecurity space. So Hyper just closed their $8 million Series A round of funding in early October. So the A round funding was led by RRE Ventures with existing investors, RTP Ventures, Bold Start Ventures and Mesh Ventures all participating in the round as well. So the Series A round brings Hyper's total funding to date to $12.8 million and enables Hyper to accelerate deployment of some of their next generation security solutions. So as part of this this funding, industry veteran James Robinson IV of RRE RRE Ventures will join HYPER's board of directors. So what exactly does HYPER do? Well, HYPER's decentralized authentication product greatly reduces the risk for enterprises of a mass data breach by eliminating the need to centrally store credentials. HYPER decentralizes and secures any form of authentication, including passwords, pins, and biometrics, such as fingerprints face recognition, hand, retina, iris, voice, and behavioral authentication data. So we're going to be asking George about these technologies and how they apply to some of the most recent breaches that we've been seeing in the news lately, as well as get his opinions in general on what's still going on in the cybersecurity space. And by the way, this guy, he's red hot right now, okay? He's all over the place. He's all over the TV. He's all over the radio, cybersecurity mags, periodicals, the guy's conquering the world, right? You can't even pick up a a cybersecurity magazine without seeing his name in it. Just Google him, George Avetisov, A-V-E-T-I-S-O-V. Guy's killing it. So we're going to be asking him a lot of questions around his expertise. And the guy has extensive experience in the e-commerce space and payments and fraud space, as I mentioned before, but he also knows a lot about business management, blockchain technology, and cryptography. And so, we're going to tap his brain on some of these subjects as well. But I promise you, we're not going to be geeking out on anyone. Promise. right? right. I've already spoke to George to make sure that we don't go down that rabbit hole. And I know he's very, very good at communicating technical subjects in a non-technical manner. So don't go anywhere. You're not going to want to miss... What the CEO of one of the hottest cybersecurity authentication companies in the world has to say about how companies and governments should be managing access to their data to prevent disasters from happening. Stay tuned. It's all coming up in the second and third segments of the show. So a couple weeks ago, I ran out of time, and I wasn't able to to get to one of the topics I wanted to talk about, and that was Kaspersky. And I was met with some friendly collective protests of disappointment from listeners as many of you were waiting for the report and commentary. And what the heck's going on over there? So, well, it it seems Kaspersky is having trouble defusing the situation, even after I reported that the German government declared that it's all good with Kaspersky over there and promised to keep using them. No problem here, they said. The Israelis and the Americans, they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, it makes you wonder who's running the BSI over there. And the BSI in in English is the Federal Office of Information Security over there in Germany. They're the ones that, who are claiming the coast is clear. But according to the Washington Post, a court document posted on Facebook page of a Russian suspect, Russian criminal suspect this year shows what appears to be an unusual degree of closeness to the FSB which is the country's most powerful security service, right? The suspect, Konstantin Kozlovsky, my best effort at that, was arrested in the summer of 2016 in connection with several cyber heists of Russian banks, and he's in a Moscow jail awaiting trial. So from his cell phone, he posted these documents related to his case. So if you don't know how it works in Russia... Russian organized crime groups are allowed to operate and even sometimes protected by former and current Russian government officials as long as the victims of their crimes are not Russian. So if you're victimizing Americans, it's all good, brother. You're the man. But if you steal from a Russian bank or you steal from Russian people and you're in Russia, that's a totally different story. Okay? The cyber popo is probably going to find you and a bunch of Russian cops are probably going to play flashlight tag on your head before they take you to the gulag. That's the end of you. So one of the documents this guy posted from his cell phone shows that in April 2015, an FSB agent inside the office of Kaspersky Labs in Moscow gave a company technician a password for a suspected Russian cybercriminal's computer. The technician gained access to the computer and obtained decrypted documents for the agent. The agent works side-by-side with the Kaspersky technician in the information retrieval operation, according to the document dated April 28, 2015. Though American cybersecurity firms sometimes provide technical assistance to the FBI in criminal investigations, the close cooperation between Kaspersky labs and the FSB raises eyebrows at a time when the Russians' firm's software products have been banned by U.S. government uh, agencies out of concern they can be exploited as a platform for Russian spying. So the FSB used the information Kaspersky obtained to help make its case against Kozlowski, who was a member of the criminal group Lurk. Kaspersky previously had publicized its help in bringing down Lurk, which allegedly stole up to $45 million from Russian companies and banks. And, and there's your mistake right there, right? That's a no-no, right? Don't steal from the Russians. As a former special agent with the United States Secret Service, I can tell you that anytime time I asked Russians for help on investigating a Russian citizen for crimes against Americans, they all of a sudden developed selective amnesia. I mean, it was like they were absent the day they taught investigations in their investigations course. But if you're a Russian citizen committing crimes against Russian citizens or Russian financial institutions, that same guy that wouldn't help me, that didn't have any information, didn't know anything, had no resources, He all of a sudden turned into Serpico and hunted down the bad guys with miraculous precision and an abundance of resources. I mean, who would have thunk it? Anyway, back to the Washington Post. The Post says it was not known that Kaspersky allowed an FSB agent to be inside its Moscow office to supervise the operation. Andrei Soldatov, an expert on Russian surveillance and often quoted in Washington Post articles on Russian cybercrime, says that the most interesting thing is that Kaspersky's experts were not asked to provide expertise. <laughs> the experts weren't asked to provide expertise. They actively and secretly participated in an ongoing FSB operation, which makes them look like assets rather than experts, which is a good observation. So. Though authorized by a Moscow court, this kind of joint operation raises a question whether the company went too far in its cooperation with the Russian secret services, Soldatov said. So the Washington Post continued in their report that the optics are poor. It's one thing to ask a firm to provide intelligence on a particular hacker it has researched. Milan Patel said he's the co-head of managed services at Blue Voyant. It's a cybersecurity company. But it's another to ask that a firm help the FBI to get live access to a computer that might have an, that information. With a court order, the FBI would conduct the surveillance on its own. And again, as a former federal agent, I also believe this statement to be true. So a senior executive at a major cybersecurity firm who spoke on the condition of anonymity to avoid being seen as criticizing another security firm said, for any commercial security vendor to be overtly involved in work like that is extremely unusual. You're basically doing an offensive cyber operation, targeting an individual system's people on behalf of an intelligence organization. But the company's founder, Eugene Kaspersky, who actually graduated from a KGB-supported cryptography school and had worked in Russian military intelligence before himself, insists that the firm has never helped espionage agencies. It doesn't matter if they're Russians or from any other nation, he said recently in London. He added that if the Russian government comes to me and asks me to do anything wrong or my employees, I will move the business out of Russia. The company said it also provided technical assistance for national and international law enforcement agencies, including Interpol, Europol and the London police. Which is kind of weird to mention that since earlier this month, I think it was around December 2nd or so. According to APNews.com, Britain's own cybersecurity agency has told their government departments not to use antivirus software from Moscow-based Kaspersky Lab amid concerns about Russian snooping. So Chiron Martin, head of the National Cybersecurity Center, said, quote, Russia is acting against the U.K.'s national interest in cyberspace. Martin said in a letter to civil service chiefs that Russia seeks to target UK central government and the UK's critical national infrastructure. He advised that a Russia-based provider should never be used for systems that deal with issues related to national security. So, back to the post. I mean, Kaspersky told reporters from the post that in addition to its common law law enforcement agencies to work together with cybersecurity companies to effectively fight cybercrime. And we know all this, but, you know, some interesting stuff going on here. In my opinion, it's all a moot point anyway, because all the data in Russia gets routed through what's called the System for Operative Investigative Activities, which is the technical specification for lawful interception. And I can guarantee you their idea of lawful interception is not the same as yours and mine. Lawful interception interfaces of telecommunications and telephone networks operating in Russia. So the current form of the specification enables the targeted surveillance of both telephone and Internet communications. It was initiated in 1995, and it allows access to surveillance data for the FSB. And in subsequent years, the access has been widened to many other law enforcement agencies in Russia as well. I mean, you can read about this. Just just Google S-O-R-M, and you can read all about it. You start out probably with Wikipedia and... And go from there, but it's just, uh, there's many very credible news sources other than Wikipedia out there on this subject, Um, and there's been books written about it. So basically, they're monitoring everything that's going through their pipes anyway, and that includes any Kaspersky data being sent to their labs in Russia for analysis and processing. So in my mind, all the debate on whether Kaspersky is purposely giving your data to the Russian government doesn't really matter. If your information touches any pipes in Russia, the Russians are reading your dirty laundry that like you read the New York Times paper on a Sunday morning. Know it to be true, baby. That's what's happening. we got to go to a break. Don't go away. We'll be right back with the red-hot CEO of Hyper, George Avedisov to get his views on how companies should be managing access to critical data and where the next paradigm shift in cybersecurity is going to happen. You're not going to want to miss it. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: In this fast paced, technologically driven world of business,
1: the stress can be crushing. It's exhausting business leaders and burning out good employees. It is not enough to work from the top down. We must now learn to work from the inside out. Listen to Innovative Mindful Solutions with Terry Galler. We will discuss ways to transform
2: roadblocking emotions using mindful based tools you can incorporate into your business
0: and your life right now. Don't stress. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice of America. Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force
1: 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. One of the sources I cite often on this show is cybersecurityventures.com. And Cybersecurity Ventures is the world's leading researcher and publisher of events covering the global cyber economy. Cybersecurityventures.com is a trusted source for cybersecurity facts, figures, and statistics. And their informative website delivers cyber economic market data insights and groundbreaking predictions to a global audience that consists of anyone interested in cybersecurity. So if you want to learn more about the facts around the cybersecurity industry and read interesting predictions on the cybersecurity talent crisis, cybercrime and and many other issues, go to cybersecurityventures.com. That's cybersecurityventures.com. So I'm excited to introduce our next guest. I'm here with the CEO of Hyper, one of the most exciting biometric authentication companies out there today, George Avedisov. Welcome to the show, George. Hey, George. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Great, great. So look, I want to talk a little bit about your company because it's very interesting and I think a lot of people uh, want to know more about what you do over there. So what's Hyper all about? I mean, you guys just raised $8 million in an A round, right? Congratulations.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Actually, we uh, just rounded off the A round at $10 million. Um, It's a great round. Yeah, uh, really good timing, actually. Uh, RRE Ventures good. led the round. Uh, MasterCard participated. We actually just announced MasterCard's investment. Uh, they were a big uh, early adopter of our technology, and we thought it was a really good idea to bring them in on the A round.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. So, what, what, what does your company do? Uh, what kind of services and products do you provide, and, 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 and how are things going with it?
2: So, Hyper focuses on solving uh, a very key problem uh, for large enterprises. That's centralized authentication. Um, For years, we've been dealing with uh, the problem of centralizing credentials, like uh, credit cards, uh, biometrics, pins, and passwords. Uh, So, anytime you hear about a large-scale breach, uh, one thing that you'll notice is that uh, the common thread between all these breaches is the centralization of personal data. And when you have centralization, you create a single point of failure that makes it easy for hackers to, uh, you know, target the enterprise. It's a high risk and it's also a high cost for the for the large enterprise. Uh, so what Hyper focuses on is decentralized authentication. Uh, we help large enterprises eliminate fraud, uh, prevent the risk of a, reduce the risk of a breach, um, and basically uh, eliminate the possibility of a centralized credential breach by decentralizing authentication. Uh, We do that in a number of ways, um, whether it's with uh, biometrics, pins, passwords. uh, The hyper-security framework gives enterprises the ability to secure millions of users with decentralization, and it's a really exciting thing to do uh, because we're solving that core problem that, that, that everyone wants to get away from today, which is centralized authentication.
1: So you deal with these consumers a lot out there when you're, when you're talking about your products. Are consumers looking at security differently today as opposed to a couple years ago? Uh,
2: well, consumers are driving this uh, interest, actually, because what we're seeing is the large enterprises are responding to consumers uh, being more aware of security and being more aware of uh, privacy. Uh, consumers are starting to see all these large breaches and you know, are asking for uh, stronger security uh, better authentication, um, better privacy, and the enterprises are responding. Uh, so this is now very much uh, something that consumers are aware of. Uh, they want better, secure experiences. And just a few years ago, you wouldn't have the average person asking a bank about two-factor authentication. I think that's a very new paradigm that we're seeing, and I think it's, it's really interesting to watch
1: so you're an entrepreneur and I'm talking to a lot of entrepreneurs out there and I'm talking to a lot of investors out there and VC guys. And there's a lot of talk about there being a cybersecurity bubble. I mean, is there a cybersecurity bubble in, in your mind right now? Is in your opinion? Is, is is there a bubble? And if so, you know, what does this really mean for venture capital in this space? Look, having seen it firsthand, um, I, I would definitely agree that there there is Indication of a cybersecurity
2: bubble. Uh, I know a lot of great venture capital firms. Um, I know some great investors in this space who have been very successful. And one thing that you'll see anybody you ask, one thing that you'll hear is just how much in common a lot of these companies have. Uh, you've got security startups um, who really do the same thing. Um, raising capital, uh, going after the same customers, and you have to wonder, you know, who's going to make it uh, when you have 10 vendors providing the same product or uh, the, same, the same technology? Um, how long before there's a consolidation in this space? I think that's coming. I think we're, uh, we're, we are definitely in the middle of a cybersecurity bubble. Uh, the thing with bubbles is you don't really know when they're going to pop. It's going to go much longer uh, before we see it uh, simmer out. And I think that uh, that's kind of an inevitability uh, we're going to see a lot of consolidation in this space, and particularly around enterprise security. Um, and I think uh, it's just something to keep an eye out if you're looking to join a startup or if you're backing a startup.
1: So lots of changes in, in this space right now. Um, in, in, your, in your view, what's the next InfoSec paradigm shift that's going to happen?
2: I think IoT authentication and IoT security overall is uh, really at the forefront of a lot of security leaders' minds, uh, where it hasn't been, uh, where it previously wasn't. Uh, when you think of the Internet of Things, the IoT, uh, you know, what comes to mind? Is it traffic lights? Is it connected home, connected cars? Uh, is it the smart grid? What, what, George, what to you comes to mind when you think of the IoT?
1: I think of it as an emerging risk, right? It just increases. The- the attack profiles of, 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 of companies. And I think about, you know, how many other devices are out there in, in, in the billions that are just going to be uh, connected to the internet at this time. And so it's, it, it, it raises a whole host of problems in my mind um, when it comes to how many devices can be used to and attack another network or how many other devices out there and compromise. I don't think security was built in to... A lot of these uh, devices, when people you know, created them, I think it was more about the user experience and getting that information and and things like that. I mean, that's the kind of way I see it. And then you, and you're you're in the authentication space, so I would venture that you know the the Internet of Things is very interesting to you.
2: <laughs> no, absolutely. You know what we're seeing uh, when we look at the omni-channel experience at an enterprise, we see consumers. Employees and the IoT, and the reason we look at the IoT as such a you know such a key segment on its own is uh, there are uh, IoT systems coming online uh, for consumers. There's IoT systems coming online within the enterprise. Uh, there's uh, all sorts of connected home, connected office, connected car, connected lock uh, technologies that we're seeing that were not around just five years ago. Right and now, the enterprises are looking at this and they're saying we just increase the attack vector by an order of magnitude. And, you know, how do we secure it? What do we do? Uh, the, the, the As you said, the user experience was what everyone cared about uh, when building these devices. It was not security layer. So now they're looking for, uh, I don't want to call it a band-aid, but in some cases, uh, you know, a security band-aid on top of uh, these connected devices. I think it's going to be really scary, but I also think it's going to be a big opportunity for security companies, uh, to build on top of uh, these
1: connected devices. Why does it seem like we're always playing catch-up? I mean, how could we couldn't think about the security from the beginning when we, we built these devices? I mean, is there it, is it a massive cultural shift that needs to take place here? And, and It's a totally different mindset that needs to be communicated and in, 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 in these companies that are creating these devices we really need to be educated. You know That security needs to be thought about from the ground up. No. So,
2: yeah, there's been panels on this. There have been blog posts. There have been podcasts. Ironically, there have been all kinds of content on this topic of why are we in a reactionary or why are we uh, you know, reacting rather than thinking ahead when it comes to security. And I think uh, a lot of people have answered this a lot of different ways. I'll give you my take on it. I think it's a cultural issue. When you go to a security company or when you go to a large bank uh, who take security seriously. Internally, there's a paranoid culture. I mean, there's almost a culture of paranoia. Uh, people are take security seriously. Even the interns uh, seem to take security seriously, at least from an operational standpoint. You'll see people taking precautions. Uh, it's not perfect, but you'll, you'll notice that the culture uh, at these places does have security embedded in it. Now, when you go to your typical Valley startup, that's you know just trying to get things going. Uh, they might be a little wacky, you know they've got a, a fun culture they want to attract talent. dude, they're not thinking about security. That's not at the top of their list of things to think about. And these are the companies building tomorrow's products. So I think you've got to get security embedded in the culture and the DNA of a company early on because if it's not there, you're going to grow without it. And that's how you wind up with the problem that you're seeing today. Not thinking about security during the building phase, but thinking about it later after the fact, after the products are shipped. That's the wrong way to go about it.
1: No doubt. man, It is the wrong way. No doubt about it. So, you know, I read a lot about blockchain technology. And I wanted to get your take on, on blockchain technology. And is, what's the what, what do you think the role of this kind of technology will be in information security moving forward?
2: Blockchain uh, is an interesting word. You know, I, I come from the crypto space. Uh, I was mining Bitcoin uh, before it was cool. So I, you know, I've heard this word thrown around uh, a lot uh, before it was even popular and before it was a buzzword. Um, in a lot of cases that I've seen, it's a solution looking for a problem. You, know, you have a lot of companies doing POCs or piloting blockchain tech in some way, shape, or form and it doesn't really fit the use case. Uh, I haven't seen too many great use cases for blockchain technology, but one that I really like uh, from an infosec standpoint is identity. Um, you know, the concept of the uh, digital identity, I think can benefit uh, from blockchain technology uh, because identity uh, by its nature is decentralized. It always has been. Um, the problem is when you centralize, Uh, things like social security numbers you end up with Equifax Uh, but when you distribute those types of numbers and you keep them decentralized and you keep people's personal personally identifiable information personal, uh, then everything is more or less okay to a degree. Uh, So where I think the blockchain can help us achieve is decentralization on the digital level, uh, which is what we've been missing. Uh, When you take the person's PII, when you take that social security number and you put it uh, in a centralized repository, that's a step backwards. When you keep it decentralized, maybe with a blockchain type of solution, I think that's a step in the right direction. And we need to see how that plays out. But I think that that is something that's a very viable use case in the security industry.
1: So the Equifax breach, you brought that up. I want you to talk about that a little bit. And because I think some of the services and products that you provide could play a role in preventing this type of breach. And it comes to mind, you know, the network the, the breach comes to mind as an example of really how bad breaches get and the consequences for service providers and customers. What's your first impression when you see a breach like this? What do you think? What, what, what comes to mind first?
2: So two things. I'll, I'll first I'll start by saying unfortunately, that's not a case where I think um, Hyper would have prevented the attack specifically because the exploit and the attack factor there had, did not have anything to do with uh, the, the actual credentials or the, uh, you know, the authentication uh, layer that, that we would provide. However, the type of breach that you saw there should not have happened, would not have happened. If that data was decentralized to begin with, if there was no centralized repository, sure, the hackers might have gotten in, but what are they going to go after? Uh, What what exactly is going to get leaked uh, to the public? Nothing. If the data isn't there to begin with. So that's that's our vision of the future. Um, It's getting that PII, getting that digital identity, getting those uh, components of a person's uh, personally identifiable information, decentralized and off of Equifax's servers and companies like Equifax. Uh, it's a long way to go to get there, but I think it's it's a very possible reality. And uh, to your point, you know what can be done to prevent these attacks. I think if we take on the uh, the concept of decentralization, if we start working towards that, uh, like some of the big companies are already, I think we can I think we can prevent those types of breaches. In the
1: future, what do, you, what do companies have to do to move towards that concept of decentralization that you're talking about?
2: Well, the first um, first step is work with Hyper. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, there are there are a number of ways. <laughs> a shameless plug. Um, no, there are a number of ways to do that. Um, the uh, the reason I focus on decentralized credentials as a starting point is because we have the technology in place to achieve that today. So, some of our earliest uh, customers and some of our uh, largest. Uh, enterprise uh, customers and partners have already taken the step to decentralizing biometrics, pins, and passwords to get them off of their centralized databases to basically get rid of the risk of storing that data. That data is now stored with the end user on the user's device, and it's a great place to start. Um, So credentials is step one. Uh, Let's get those credentials back to the users. Uh, The next step is more around the realm of digital identity. Uh, as, as you just mentioned with the Equifax breach, you know, those weren't necessarily passwords, but depending on how you look at the social security numbers that were breached, they're a type of credential. Uh, so I think as we go from you know, usernames, passwords, biometrics, uh, uh, credit card numbers, uh, we can get a step further and decentralize identity as well. And uh, it would be interesting to see if the blockchain uh, succeeds in doing that. So hopefully that, that's a good roadmap to, uh, from point A to point B.
1: So how do we strike the right balance, though? Because given that Equifax relies on data to provide its services to, to, to companies and, and its customers, many would say that decentralized solutions might not be a good fit, right? Because since user, users are actually holding some or, or too much of the data needed for Equifax and its credit reporting peers to calculate credit scores. So what's the balance there, and is there an internal use case? That you're you know, trying to get at here,
2: I think I don't think there's a future where everything is decentralized. That that makes no sense. <laughs> I think people who um, it's not binary. I think there are situations where uh, you will always have some centralized repository of data necessary for the the enterprise to fulfill its service. Uh, but try to think of it like this: right now, when you use these uh, technologies, when you use Equifax, when you use a different third party service that holds a ton of data like this you are pulling your personal data down from the from the third party think about that, you're pulling it from them instead of pushing it to them, I think in the decentralized future, you would be pushing your data up to the third party uh, when you need to do that, when you need to run a credit check or when you need to um, um, you know uh, apply uh, for a mortgage or, or whatever you're doing with that data, we should be adopting a push based mechanism and getting away from this pull uh, it's not personal data if someone else has it and if I'm pulling it from them this is, you know, there's no reason to call it personal data at that point uh, so I think there's a lot of situations where decentralization will not you know solve the problem it might not even be possible but at least for the personal data that I just described, uh, that you can push upwards. I I don't see any reason uh, what's stopping us from doing that.
1: Cool. So, George, we've got to take a a pause for a short break. We'll be right back with George Vedasov after these brief messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: in your business are you on top of your pr game pr is what tells your story whether it's the business itself key people in your business or showing your best face to the public listen for the brand ambassadors host Merritt hamilton allen with co-host gary potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas building your personal brand risk management crisis communication and more Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. How many milestones do we rack up in our lives? From marriage to changing jobs, buying a home, and starting a family. We think we have our money and finances figured out, but it isn't that easy. Learn how to plan,
2: set, and achieve your financial goals by tuning in to Money Counts, unleashing your money's hidden potential with host Debbie Peterson. It's time to take control of your personal cash flow. Listen
0: every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's task force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas, Welcome
1: back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with the CEO of Hyper, George Avetisov, and we're going to continue our conversation about information security. Uh, so, Verizon reports that 81% of deliberate hacks are credential based. So, it's, it's the basic bearer token movie that we've seen before, right? The username password scheme also hasn't really served us well with the growth of desktop, mobile, and IoT systems that we were talking about before in the second segment of the show. So where do you see password-based authentication today and where do you see it going tomorrow?
2: Yeah, that's a great point you just brought up. Uh, we actually just released a white paper uh, last week about uh, you know the, the, the decentralization and decentralized authentication, specifically with regards to biometrics, pins, and passwords. And to your question about... What do you, you know, what do I see as the role of the password, or what might happen to the password uh, down the line? Uh, I think the password's is evolving. Um, you know, when you talk to a lot of people in the industry today, one of the things you hear over and over again is, "Oh, the password's dying; it's on its way out. Uh, no more passwords. Uh, say no to passwords." There's lots of different phrases and buzzwords around the death of the password. Uh, what's, what's interesting to me is when you actually um, look at, you know, how long people have been saying this, it's been going on for a decade. Uh, People have been talking about the death of the password for many years now. So why is it still here? Uh, Well, I think the answer to that is it's still fundamentally a form of authentication. Uh, I don't think that passwords just die out one day. I think they change. I think their role is going to change. They're going to be a method of authentication uh, in addition to biometrics or PINs or behavioral authentication, uh, but they're not just going to be phased out. Uh, what is going to change is the role of the password as the primary authenticator. Uh, we've been using passwords for years as a sort of keys to the kingdom. Once you're logged in, that's it. that You've got full access, and the password that you used is that key. Uh, we're, we're starting to see a transition away from that uh, into step-up experiences where passwords are just one part of the equation and biometrics are layered on top. Uh, so I think that's what you're going to see a lot more of um, combinations and multi-factor authentication on top of the password.
1: So when we're, t- we're talking about decentralized authentication, I think decentralized authentication requires the data that we want to keep closely held to be on a user's device, but even the devices themselves have their own vulnerabilities. So what ways in your mind, can data meant to stay safe on a device be extracted by a hacker?
2: Oh, absolutely. That's see, that's the big paradigm shift. Uh, now hackers uh, attack uh, today. Hackers attack a centralized database on the enterprise side. They really target the big payload. You know, they want millions of people's card numbers or passwords or pins. Uh, what changes when you switch to decentralized authentication? is hackers can no longer attack a centralized repository. They have to go device to device to device to try to breach a user specifically. Now, that is a big pain in the neck for hackers. Uh, It's not a uh, scalable, and it's uh, not a great approach. Uh, It requires them to focus and target people um, individually. And uh, most importantly, it changes the type of attacks that they can launch. Uh, so to your point, yes, you are going to see more attacks on the devices. Uh, yes, we're likely to see devices get breached as a result of manufacturer weaknesses, uh, but that's why uh, enterprises are starting to uh, layer security controls on top of the device itself. Uh, so one of the solutions Hyper provides, for example, is uh, in addition to decentralized authentication, uh, we provide a component called trusted execution. Uh, which uses the most secure uh, possible uh, data store on any given device uh, in order to secure your data. Uh, these devices have great ways of securing data that are not utilized today uh, by many companies. They also have very easy uh, penetration points uh, for hackers. The, the trick, the key, is to uh, secure the device layer itself, and that makes it exponentially more difficult for hackers to pull off these attacks. Uh, So I think it's a combination of understanding the devices, understanding the fragmentation across the devices and using third-party solutions to secure the device layer itself.
1: So when you're talking about trust zones and storing that data down to the hardware layer of of a mobile or desktop device, how's that work?
2: So over the past few years, Devices have started shipping with more and more uh, trust zones. Uh, 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 Intel's got the SGX. Uh, Apple calls it the secure enclave. Um, Android devices have the trusted execution environment. And these are all, uh, you know, basically reimaginations of the secure element. Uh, They are layers of the device that allow you to uh, store data and perform cryptographic functions securely in a way that's isolated from the main operating system, uh, from the rich operating system. And because the data is isolated on the manufacturer level, uh, that makes it very difficult uh, for hackers to breach uh, the the trusted layer. Um, In some cases, it's uh, not implemented properly. We've seen that with devices over the past couple of years. I think a good example of this is um, two years ago, there was an HTC phone that had a fingerprint sensor breached remotely uh, by hackers who attacked the trust zone layer and were able to extract fingerprint data off of that device remotely. That's a perfect example of a manufacturer flaw that led to essentially a weak or broken trust zone. Um, And and that is totally unacceptable uh, when you're looking at decentralized authentication. Uh, The way to get around that is to properly utilize trust zone, use third-party solutions uh, to secure it, and always have controls in place where if a manufacturer flaw is exposed, or if a a large-scale exploit on a device is exposed, you can simply shut off those credentials, um, have the user re-register, and no longer have to worry about the attack uh, the way we used to with a centralized repository.
1: So consumers probably won't think about security past their, their, their service providers promise to keep it offline or perhaps tokenized in some way. What do trust zone, TPM, and, and Secure Enclave discussions with enterprises actually look like? Are these enterprises savvy when it comes to hardware access and, and containerization, even though your conversations probably begin with them as, as software-focused, Right.
2: Yeah, you'd be surprised. Uh, it's a mixed bag. Um, typically, you don't want to go into an enterprise discussion uh, telling, telling them about all the benefits of a trust zone. <laughs> it's, you know, if you're talking to certain executives who don't really understand or don't want to understand hardware-level security, their eyes are going to blaze over. <laughs> you don't really want to educate on, on, on the benefits and the power of a trust zone or a secure element uh, right out of the gate. Uh, It's a component of a much bigger solution. Uh, You want to get in there and you want to talk to the enterprise about what is decentralized authentication doing for the big players that have already adopted it? Uh, How is it eliminating fraud? How have they saved millions of dollars on password resets and password costs? Um, How have they made the user experience faster for their users? These are the things you really want to focus on. Uh, The trust zone and the hardware-level security is part of that solution. It's something that needs to be uh, you know, adopted as part of decentralized authentication, but you don't lead in with that. Um, infosec teams at these enterprises have been evaluating and learning and looking at these technologies for some time now. So once you get in there, once you're getting into production, you will go come across the infosec team that you know vets your trust zone or your hardware level security. Uh, they will perform those pen tests, and you better have your stuff together <laughs> to pass them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, that's not something that comes up uh, right out of the gate. I think it's, it's an afterthought, and I think it's something that should be included in any platform um, that, that an enterprise uh, delivers at, at scale today.
1: So you've been quoted as saying that encrypted templates being stored on device devices begets an enhanced experience. So I, I imagine there are gains to the speed at which verification occurs when, when this process takes place. And how about the time it takes for the server side cryptographic challenge response? Is there a lag there? And what, what, what what kind of speeds are you trying to achieve?
0: We've
2: actually seen benchmarks. uh, We've seen comparison tests where, you know, on the one hand, you've got a facial recognition being validated on a server. Um, So you scan your face on a mobile device and uh, the server uh, validates your facial recognition template, and then sends back a, uh, an authentication approval. Um, that experience is, is you know, typically what you would expect with a password. You're sending it up for validation, uh, except it's a bit slower. Uh, biometrics typically take longer to validate. Um, when you flip that and you have decentralized authentication, which has the face validated on the user end, and a cryptographic challenge signed that gets validated on the server side, that's a much faster experience. Uh, In some tests that we've ran side-by-side, it's two to three times faster than centralized authentication. Uh, This is one of the things that, when we work with large customers, one of the things that they really love about decentralized authentication is how much faster the user experience is for the user. Uh, You know, you're an end-user you're using the banking app or you're making mobile payments or you're accessing your insurance portal, you don't want to sit there and wait for your face or your password or your, your voice to be validated over three to six seconds. You don't have that time. Decentralized authentication takes under a half second. It's quick and the round trip is, is much faster across the board. Uh, so that user experience factor is a key component of uh, and a key benefit of the technology.
1: Right. So you, you and your co-founders talk a lot about the user experience and, and customer journeys. You know, I like that, customer journeys, right? I hear you say that. And, and, and at the same time, you invoke military-grade encryption, interoperability, and other security software selling points. So how big of a design and UX investment does your company make in this area? And, and do any buyers notice, or is this just sort of a footnote or, or hobbyist interest of yours?
2: Oh, we have an entire UX department that, from the ground up, uh, not only works with customers through the pilot level, but beyond that and into production. Uh, Here's the thing about decentralized authentication, biometric authentication, passwordless authentication, all these buzzwords being thrown around right now. These experiences are relatively new. So when you talk to an enterprise and you ask them how many of your users enjoy using face recognition, a lot of them have no idea how to answer that. They haven't run the UX studies or they haven't done it at scale. One of the things that you really want to share with these enterprises, and one of the things I think that we do um, that we pride ourselves on doing, is taking a UX-driven approach. If the enterprises users don't like eye recognition or don't prefer voice recognition, don't force it on them. That's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of data you need to, to make your users happy. Uh, you need to know what they like, what they're using how they're using it, when they're using it. Um, So UX, I think everything starts from the UX and works backwards uh, from there. Um, I'll give you a quick example. We had a large customer, uh, an international customer, who rolled out a multimodal biometric experience. So it was voice recognition, face recognition, eye recognition, uh, all of this powered by Hyper. And they found that users thought eye recognition was great but facial recognition was creepy. That was the quote that they used uh, from from their user base. They thought it was creepy. Now, what was weird was that the same test that we ran in the U.S., the United States, had the total opposite. Uh, Users thought that face recognition was great and eye recognition was a little bit out there. Uh, So it's it's, it's a really interesting difference when you look at country by country, uh, how user experience and how people think differently. About these biometrics and
1: about these authenticators. So speaking about people thinking differently, right? I think different business units in every corporation, every LOB, is seeking out the the, the the technologies that they specifically need, and, and and these needs are very different. And CISOs are almost incidentally getting UX upgrades all the time. So do experienced leads have a solution they can shop internally without worrying about validation for from security teams? <laughs>
2: I think if you get uh, the business teams, that, uh, if, you, if you get buy-in from the business leaders, you should be able to do some level of a pilot or some level of a rollout uh, without InfoSec uh, fully signing off on it. I think it's important for uh, some, some innovation team or some lab within the enterprise to get through all the red tape uh, that InfoSec puts in place. Um, I, I love InfoSec teams. I think that the, the, I tell everyone, do everything by the InfoSec Bible, but when it comes to innovating and when it comes to testing user experiences, you know, you as a C-level executive need to understand that if everything you do is, um, you know, blocked or or delayed by the InfoSec teams, your competitors are going to get way out ahead of you. Uh, So you need innovation labs and you need, um, you know, business units who can uh, pilot or POC or really quickly uh, deploy new user experiences uh, without having a full-on security implementation. Um, once you decide to put it into production, then bring in the InfoSec team, uh, then get the technology vetted, uh, and that'll save you a big headache on you know, disapproving vendors that wouldn't have made it there in the first place.
1: So I want to get your, I want to get your opinion about something. What are your thoughts, and wh- wh- what kind of response do you have to the launch of the, the iPhone Face ID? capability? What's your first response and your team's confidence in this type of level of security, the usability, just the the overall viability of of this huge leap in technology?
2: Uh, We love it. I mean, any any device, any additional sensor, uh, any new modality that gets people uh, excited and has them using these devices uh, for secure experiences is a positive. Uh, When you look at the Samsung S8, which has three modalities: it's got fingerprint, face, and eye recognition. That's fantastic. Uh, enterprises are, should be, and are already leveraging those modalities to uh, secure new user experiences uh, across their devices. Uh, iPhone, by introducing Face ID, has basically said, "Look, not only are biometrics here to stay; there are different types of biometrics for different user experiences." And I like that they're. You know, they're not putting touch and face on the same device. That's a really interesting thing that they did uh, to split test, in my opinion. I think they're split testing which device uh, people prefer and which experience people prefer. Because you could very easily put both sensors on one phone. Uh, There's a reason that they didn't do that. And I think it'll be interesting to see how people adopt facial recognition versus touch and what they use it for uh, as opposed to touch ID.
1: Okay, brother. I think that's all we have time for today. I mean, I can't, you know, tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show. I want you Don't to come back. I think it's great talking down, to you. Man. Yeah, we going to Barcelona or what?
2: I am going to be there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm going to try to make it there myself. So, look, that, I appreciate you coming on. I think it's a great discussion. Congratulations on the closing of your A round again. Um, great stuff. We'll talk soon. So before before we go, I want to remind our listeners to read a recap of tonight's show. They can go onto the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's a wrap for today. I'll see everyone after the holidays. Happy holidays to everyone. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.